Good morning. <clears throat> Scripture reading this morning is from Colossians 3, uh, verses 1 through 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Did you ever hear that little ditty? I think it was in a song at one point. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. You ever heard that song? I think it's just kind of funny because it seems routinely to be true. Everybody wants to go to this earth uh, or die. That, of course, is not qualitative. There are some people who are ready to die and long for death. But for the most part, we think maybe there's a heaven out there and we'd love to go there, but not yet. As a matter of fact, this, this understanding or what I'll call a longing for another world is not just Christian. As a matter of fact, every culture has its own version of the afterlife or what we call heaven or paradise. A, a few examples. The Babylonians thought of heaven as a resting place for heroes. And in the picture they painted of heaven, a resting place for their heroes, there was a hint of the tree of life similar to what we see in the book of Revelation. The Romans had a notion of heaven or paradise as a picnic in Elsian fields, which were imaginative, perfect fields with horses grazing nearby. Australian Aborigines culture decided that heaven was a distant island on the western horizon. Another place like their own, except perhaps better. Native Americans routinely had a variety of happy hunting grounds because that was so important to their sustaining life. On the other hand, there are many misconceptions of heaven, even within the Christian tradition. Well, I wasn't planning on baptizing anybody today, but uh, <laughs> that comes later. Um, even in the Christian tradition, there's all kinds of misunderstandings, misconceptions of heaven. And one of the reasons is because the Scripture is not really that explicit about heaven, and for the most part, theologians haven't developed a rather lengthy doctrine of heaven. Any of you who went to seminary or studied systematic theology, what you would find in this huge tome of systematic theology, let's say 1,200 pages, not uncommon, at the very end of it, in the section on eschatology or last things, there'd be a few pages about the possibility of heaven and what it looks like. So in some fashion, we've kind of ignored the subject to a certain extent based on lack of knowledge and maybe fear that we don't want to say something that's not true. 
Actually, I think that's probably a good concern. Because we could create a figment of our imagination that doesn't match up with the biblical revelation. Having said that, routinely what we think of of heaven is like going into the clouds and, you know, the pictures of people sitting in the clouds with a harp and playing and singing all day. Um, the Far Side comic captured this image um, with, with this uh, sketch that he did. It will come up. That's not it. It's in there. I know it's there because I can see it back here. There it is. Guy with the halo and wings. <laughs> He's obviously made it to heaven. And he said, I wish I'd brought a magazine. In other words, I'm bored out of my life, right? I used to read. I used to do things. And now I'm floating on a cloud. Sometimes we think of heaven in some other form of silly imagery. That probably is not connected with reality, at least biblical reality. So in order to think about this topic of heaven, the already not yet nature of paradise, let's begin by noting a few references. Uh, the, The first reference is sort of a large reference concerning what Scripture refers to as heaven. And it's not just one thing. Um, you could break down references to Scripture into perhaps three categories. One category related to heaven would be what you might call cosmology, right? The cosmic. It is referred to as the heavens or the universe, things that are out there. Another usage for the word heaven in the Bible is that heaven is essentially synonymous with God or God's kingdom. A third, and we could name others, but let's just stick with these three, is a particular place. Heaven is a particular place, namely the abode of God. All three of those descriptions, um, as inexact as they may be, are used in Scripture when it comes to the word heaven. But more in particular, when we think of Scripture passages that refer to heaven, I want to go through a list very quickly of nine. And you know I just scratched the surface with telling you about nine references. You'll be familiar with all of them if you know the Bible. A voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Heaven in the book of Hebrews, you might say is called a final resting place in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The prayer that Jesus told us to pray said to begin with this series of words, our Father who art in heaven, apparently somewhere else. He also said, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Jesus refers to his Father very specifically as being in heaven. In Matthew 5, 
at Christ's birth, angels come from heaven and depart to heaven. And routinely throughout the scriptures, we hear angels associated with this place called heaven. In Matthew 6, you remember these words. Jesus says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But instead, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupts and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Make sure you store the treasures of your heart in heaven. It is, according to the New Testament, from heaven that Christ will be revealed. He will come again in glory. There's also a brief introduction to heaven in the book of Revelation. Brief, I say, compared to all the other things that are in the book of Revelation, in which the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. It's a city, and it's inhabited by the people of the earth who call God their God. There's many more descriptions or references to heaven, and we can't explore them all. So the first thing I gave you, for those of you who are outline people, that was references, okay? The second thing is location. I'll just jump out ahead if some people really like to outline things. The third main point is going to be description. And the final point is going to be imagination. Okay? So here we are. Now, location. I um, had a pastor in New Haven, Connecticut at um, an evangelical free church where my wife and I and children went in our early days there. He was an interesting fellow. He was just kind of a old, just easy-talking not complicated, but he actually was quite bright. His uh, son was a PhD scholar in, in Old Testament studies. On one occasion, he told the congregation, he said, he was very folksy, he said, well, I was in the barber chair this week. You can imagine Pastor Westerholm sitting in the barber chair, and he said, as usual, I'm trying to figure out a way to talk about Jesus. He was big on evangelism, and everybody knew him in the barber shop. And he said, so the guy who's cutting my hair decides to try to stump the preacher. And he says to me, Reverend, where is heaven? And he said, I responded, heaven is wherever God is. If you want a concise definition, you can't do much better. Heaven is wherever God is. But more particular to location, heaven is said to be a place. Jesus said he was returning to heaven. He was going to be in heaven with the Father. So he told his disciples before his departure. It is said in Scripture to be an abode for those who have inherited eternal life, a place. The saints are described as being in heaven, wherever that location is. 
But apparently these saints are not disembodied souls. They apparently have spiritual bodies and experience a life somewhat similar to the earthly one. Remember the phrase of, that Jesus used on the cross when the penitent thief said, remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus' response was very simple and straight to the point. Today you will be with me in paradise. Not sure where paradise is, but it's where God is. And for those who long to be with God, they eventually will be in paradise. So first, heaven does have a location associated with it. But part of that location that is sometimes overlooked is the material nature of the location. Or let me put it another way. It's right here. When Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God, he didn't see the kingdom of God is just coming. He didn't say the kingdom of God is at a certain place I can give you the GPS coordinates in the universe. He said, the kingdom of God is among you. God's kingdom, synonymous with God's presence, it's among you. Open your eyes to it. By faith. Our passage this morning was insightful in that regard, wasn't it? I want to read it to you in a different version, which I actually prefer, because it uses the word heaven. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. These words we read, Since you have been raised to newness with, of life with Christ, You've been raised in newness of life with Christ. Since that has happened, of course, it's not the final resurrection. We're still talking about the already, not yet. Since you've been raised in newness of life with Christ, set your sights, your eyes, fix them on the realities of heaven. Where Christ sits... In a place of honor at God's right hand. Think about things of heaven, not things of earth. Now, as I read that, you may say to yourself, isn't that a bit of a contradiction to what you just said, that heaven is among us? No, not at all. Because Paul is not saying in Colossians 3, 1 through 2, place your mind on heaven. He's not giving a description of a place where you're thinking of that makes you heavenly minded and basically no earthly good. He's not talking about a form of Gnosticism that takes you above the material reality. We know Paul was against that. Paul didn't say it, but Martin Luther said it. God likes matter. After all, he created it. So Paul wasn't saying, don't think about the material world. Don't look at the beauty of the material world. Don't consume the material world. Don't be delighted by the eternal 
the material world. But set your eyes, your, your eyes, your sight on things that are above it. How do you set your sight on things that are above it? You may say, well, you stop looking at it. No, that still doesn't get at it. What Paul is saying is, look at him. Look at her. Look at that and see the very kingdom of God. See the very image of God, which is the definition of incarnation. Right here, right now, just as Jesus was with us, God is with us. Look and find the kingdom of heaven and remind yourself that these things are only road markers to something that is even more real. Does that mean I I throw these things in the garbage? Of course not. It means I understand them in light of eternity. It suggests that the material order that we know of is beautiful and lovely and incomplete. And someday that whole beautiful reality will be restored. Um, If Paul were here today, And he was invited to a science conference on biology or physics or cosmology or name the list. I don't think Paul would dismiss all the knowledge that has been gained by these scientists. I don't think he'd be at all disturbed by varieties of theories of evolution. I don't think he would be troubled by people's understanding of the universe and how it came to be. I, I, I don't think he'd be bothered by it at all. You know what he'd be bothered by? Is that when a scientist says, this is all there is, Paul might say, I love your science. As a matter of fact, I'm untrained. I can't even figure out all the details. But what I know is there's something behind all of this. There's something absolutely eternal and beautiful that gave us all this. And I want to keep my eyes fixed on eternal things. As I view material things because when I do the material things have more beauty and more meaning now to the word description when we think of the description of heaven you you might remember when you think of the descriptions you've heard of heaven They're all borrowed images. Streets, rivers, thrones, 
trees, cities. Why are they borrowed images? Because that's all we've got. When the great explorers like Marco Polo and other people left their particular place and explored distant, exotic lands like China, they came back with descriptions of these lands. It could have been any number of explorers besides Marco Polo. And they did their best in their contemporary local culture to try to capture the people's imagination by saying it's like that but more. Imagine the first person trying to describe to a person who never experienced it, Victoria Falls or Niagara Falls. What would you do? You would say, you know that falls that we have in such and such place? And how big and beautiful it is? I want to tell you about a falls I saw. You know that street that you drive down? I want to tell you about another street. You know that tree that you love? I want to tell you about another tree. That's how we function, isn't it? So when the description of heaven is given to us, all those material earthly images are a part of it. Heaven is always filled with light. Because Christ is the light of the city. The streets are paved with gold. Why? Because the streets are literally gold? Well, maybe and maybe not. That's not the point. The point is that pavement, the stuff we have under our feet and ride our carriages on in that day, are things that you wouldn't otherwise think as that valuable in terms of Gold. But gold, the most precious object you can imagine, is used for pavement. It shows you how grand and glorious this new city is. There's a river that is pure in the city, perfectly pure. Paul didn't put it this way, but let me put it this way. Not polluted by chemicals. It needs no processing before we drink it. It is a beautiful running river. And um, John calls it the river of life. The water of life. There's a tree in this place, says the book of Revelation. And this tree, it always bears fruit. You like apples? It doesn't really go dormant. And you have to wait nine months. Just keeps bearing them. You like oranges? Goes on forever. Wow, what a place. And in the middle of the city... A city frequently in ancient terms refers to a place of safety. There was usually a gate around it to keep outsiders out, those who would do harm to the inhabitants. This is a city 
Safety is huge. But before you think of a city as busy and crowded and all these kinds of things, the revelator says, in the middle of the city, there's a garden. This city's not a concrete jungle. This city is beautiful. And in this city, there is no sickness or death, which is humanity's greatest enemy. In this city, there's no evil. There's no sin. The source of conflict, which is Satan, has been vanquished. It's a place where there is an enormous banquet feast. I can't help but think of some of the most unbelievable meals I've ever eaten. There it's before me every day. And there, because there's perfect balance, I'm not gluttonous. There I can eat. Wow, won't this be great? And not gain weight. It'll be just enough. That's the image. But there's something else about the description of this place called heaven. Heaven, in the end, not in the intermediary state, but in the end, heaven is the renewal of creation, bringing creation back to the way things ought to be. So some of you, um, I think, are skeptical of or tire of... um, my conviction concerning creation care and taking care of our world. This is where it comes from. It's not just some hack political ideology. At the very beginning, we were made to be gardeners. We were made to care for God's creation. We were made to do with it what is beautiful and not destroy it. And in the end, it's all going to be restored and we're going to be full circle back to the garden, but even better, full circle back to the garden. And our role will be caring for God's beautiful city. Don't think of heaven as static, where everything is frozen in place perfectly. Think of heaven as the absence of evil and decay and the opportunity of God's people to find meaningful work to beautify what God has given us. I think that's the image of heaven, particularly in the book of Revelation. Now to imagination, which is my last point. Um, I hope this flurry of imagination is holy. If it's not, you can call it mundane or whatever you wish. 
I, I try to let my imagination run wild. It's okay. I try to use the guardrails of Scripture, and I ask, what must it be like? That was my question. Here's some of the things. A place where I can rejoice in everyone. There are no enemies. There is no sin. And in my heart, there's no jealousy. You know how many times jealousy impedes my ability to rejoice in the other? It'll be gone. I only know one illustration of the way in which I'm able to rejoice in another without jealousy. It's my children. When they succeed and they do things better than I ever could have imagined for them, but I would like to have done them, I don't have a shred of jealousy. Nothing but delight. It's about the only place where pure holiness resides in my heart. Because it never enters my mind to be jealous of the joys and delights of my children or their career. Let, let me get more specific about me. My daughter is a sports broadcaster for a major league baseball. Do you know how much money Dan and I would give to be that? But I am not a bit jealous of her. My son is a professor in a university. Sorry to tell you, I never wanted this job. God called me and I said yes. I just wanted to be a professor. And never once do I look at him with a shred of jealousy. I'm just delighted for him. Heaven will be that kind of place. We'll be able to see with new eyes and understand in new ways. What would it be like to see with new eyes and understand in new ways? Well, here's one experience that I would love to have. I'd, I'd love to scale the highest peak in the world and look down on the earth. I'm not going to do it, dear. I promise. Not going to go there. But I'd like to do it with never worrying about a slip or fall. And in heaven, it seems like maybe I can. I'd like to fly over the Swiss Alps 
and swoop down between high mountain ridges. Never worry about crashing. That would be cool. Maybe I can. I'd love to be able to sail all the oceans in this world without ever having to worry about a hurricane and without even a hint of seasickness. I'd like to be able to cultivate a garden and work hard at it without fighting with the weeds. I'd like to be able to uh, eat food that's perfectly prepared and never gain weight. And I have a fascination that'll never happen for me. Until then, perhaps, I'd like to really see and really understand the universe. How about this picture from the Webb telescope? Is that beautiful or what? What is it? You know what scientists call it? Pillars of creation. Isn't that interesting? It seems like, maybe unintended, somehow God just kind of crept into the picture. That's not all there is. It can't be completely explained. And its explanation on this side without faith in God would be empty. It'd be like a formula. But what the scripture tells us is that all that beauty is the handiwork of God. What the scripture tells us is that God prepared it in advance and created this whole universe And it moves and breathes because of his presence. How I would love to know more about that universe that is his. Maybe someday I can. Now, unlike some people, I don't believe there will be a stalemate in heaven. To put it another way, I think there will always be progress. I'll always be learning. I will always be plumbing the depths of the eternal nature that is God himself. Wow. Having said all of that, I want to go back to my original little ditty. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. I think I'm ready to die. Because that's what's on the other side. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, you are great. You're powerful. You're beyond our understanding. You're perfect. 
and you're forgiving. And because of that forgiveness, you've given us hope. We couldn't get there. We couldn't understand it. We couldn't even function in your new creation if it weren't for your grace. So thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for the hope of eternal life. We wait for it, anticipating the day we will be with you. In your name we pray. Amen.